we're in a series of uh, miracles and parables that the Lord Jesus has done or taught. And this morning, we come to a very well-known miracle of Jesus feeding of 5,000 men, plus women and children. You know, it seems not too far-fetched to me at all that if there were 5,000 men who were counted in that lunch crowd, there were probably 5,000 women, maybe more. And if there were 5,000 men and 5,000 women, maybe there were 5,000 teenagers and children who were in the crowd. By the way, if there were teenagers in that crowd, then the miracle looks all the more impressive because you know how they can eat. Nonetheless, um, this miracle is recorded here in John that we're going to preach from, but also in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark and Luke. This is one of the few par- uh, miracles, rather, of Jesus that is recorded in all four of the Synoptic Gospels. It tells you that it has great significance uh, for us. I want to see four C's with you in the time we have in this miracle. Four C's, I want to see with you the context, the conversations, the compounding of the food, and the conclusion. So let's get right after it, starting with the context. When you turn to John chapter 6 and read verses 1 through 4, you see what was going on just prior to Jesus doing this miracle. John 6, 1 through 4, hear the word of God. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. And a great multitude was following him because they were seeing the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. So what was going on before this huge meal was that Jesus and his men were looking for two hours, rest and relaxation. For They all had been serving the Father with diligence, exertion, and had been working long hours in that ministry. They all were exhausted. And Jesus, being the good shepherd, knew that he was tired, and he knew that his men were tired. So he went to a mountain for a retreat. But very soon, a retreat turned into another hour, which was... uh, releasing people from hunger, uh, serving people in their hunger. And so uh, when I look at my own life, and there have been plenty of times in my own life when I've been exhausted, and sometimes the exhaustion I have felt coupled with opposition I was feeling for the Lord I love and for the work I was doing for the Lord. And I'll just tell you, when I have been exhausted and when I have been uh, opposed in my ministry, I didn't think about feeding anybody else. I'm just being real. I didn't think about feeding anybody when I was exhausted and when I was facing opposition. But Jesus, in his perfect humanity and deity, when he saw that crowd of perhaps 15,000 people coming his way, maybe near, near a mealtime, the scripture doesn't tell us, but nonetheless, he knew they were needy. He knew that there was a bunch of them, and he decided to minister to them in their very practical need of food. And so that's the context of this miracle. And so we go on to the conversations from the context. The conversations in this record were two conversations, one with Philip and one with Andrew. Let's look at the conversation with Philip first. Frankly, it was a disaster conversation. It didn't go very well at all. And so what we see is that Jesus had a conversation with Philip, and uh, the Lord kicked this off 
by understanding that there was a need coming his way like a large multitude. And so he turns to Philip in verse five and he asks him a question. Jesus, therefore, lifting up his eyes and seeing a great multitude was coming to him, said to Philip, where are we to buy bread that these may eat? Now, Philip was the logical disciple to ask that question of because he was raised, he grew up right near the site of this miracle. So Jesus, in effect, was saying, do you know where there's a food store that we could buy enough food for 15,000 people? <laughs> Jesus saw the onslaught of the crowd as an opportunity to love them. Jesus saw the onslaught of the crowd as an opportunity to serve them. Jesus saw the onslaught of that big crowd as an opportunity for him to have his power as God outflowing to that people. In other words, Jesus understood that human hunger could be a way to demonstrate heaven's care. And that empty stomachs could be a way to evidence once and for all, decisively, that he was the savior. Jesus wasn't rattled by the crowd. He wasn't annoyed by the crowd. He wasn't impatient with the crowd. He loved the crowd. And he knew they needed something to eat. And so he miraculously supplied more than they could eat. In verse 7, the one who grew up in the, in the hood, <laughs> who knew where the food stores were, he said... We'll go to six. This he, Jesus, was saying to test him, Philip, for Jesus himself knew what he was intending to do. Of course Jesus knew what he himself was intending to do. He intended to do this miracle, but he asked Philip as a test of Philip's faith. Verse seven, Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them for everyone to receive even a little. Basically, a denarius was the pay that a common laborer earned in one day in Palestine when Jesus Christ was on earth. And so Jesus was hearing from Philip, hey, Lord, if somebody, a laborer's wages for roughly a half a year's wages for being a laborer, that wouldn't begin to pay for enough bread for this crowd for everyone to even have a little sample taste. Now, I know that we all make different amounts of money uh, for our jobs, but let's say that a laborer's wage in the Bahamas right now is around 13,000 Bahamian dollars a year. I realize some laborers work for less than that and other laborers work for more than that, but just for the sake of example, let's say that the average Bahamian laborer could make 13,000 Bahamian dollars in a year. 200 denarii would be around half of an annual wage for a laborer or roughly 6,500 Bahamian dollars. And so what was going on there was Philip says to the Lord, you know, if we had $6,500 Bahamian, we couldn't even buy enough food to give everybody in this immense crowd a little something to eat. <laughs> we know from experience that Bahamians in Miami shopping at Walmart for groceries couldn't find enough food to buy at a Walmart in Miami either for that kind of a crowd. Now, you know, in most groups, where you work in business, where you worship in church, maybe in your neighborhood, and maybe in your nuclear family. You know, in most groups, there's a statistical pessimist. <laughs> a statistical pessimist. And sure was a statistical pessimist in Jesus' group of disciples. His name was Philip. <laughs> Philip said to Jesus, what I've just been reading to you, 
Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them for everyone to receive a little. Philip was the statistical pessimist of the bunch. Now, I don't think that Philip's comment is recorded in Scripture, the Scripture reporting this miracle, to put Philip down. I don't think that. I think rather that the the scriptural record uh, gives us what he said to Jesus, not to put him down, but to put the scale of the miracle's impressiveness up. I mean, and all you can eat buffet for 15,000 mouths with five buns and two sardines in the kitchen? So that first conversation with Philip was somewhat disastrous. So let's go on to the second conversation Jesus had. It was with Andrew. (laughs) When you read the New Testament, you see that Andrew is the patron saint of the second best. (laughs) The patron saint of the second best. How do you mean, Pastor? I mean this, that Andrew is regularly referred to in the New Testament as Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. It's never, in the New Testament, it's never Peter, Simon's brother. It's always Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And when you look at the New Testament, that is pretty consistent, that Andrew gets the second ranking. For instance, John 1, verse 40, one of the two had heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He's playing second fiddle. He's the patron saint of the second best. But really, when you look at the New Testament a little further, you see that in the listing of Jesus' 12 disciples, they are in groups of three or four, and the head group, the head of the list group, some have called Jesus' inner cabinet, his closest disciples, the ones that he poured more of himself into because they were teachable. And when you look at that inner cabinet, that was of three or four men, depending on the list you're looking at, if Andrew Andrew even makes the top cabinet with Jesus, the top four, he's always listed last. It's always Peter, James, John, and Andrew. So more accurately, Andrew is the patron saint of the fourth best. Now, if we're honest, I'll start with the man in the pew. If you're honest, the woman in the pew, if you're honest, and the man in the pulpit, if I'm honest, no one here today is the first best. (laughs) And no one here today is even the second best either. In fact, none of us here today are even the fourth best. The fact is that we're all ordinary. We're average, we're unremarkable, we're common, and we should be entirely all right with that. We should be understanding and not protesting that to the world out there that cheerfully leaves Jesus Christ out of everything, that each and every one of us are insignificant. That's all right. Now, let's learn something from Andrew, who was not the first best disciple and not the third best disciple, but maybe the fourth best disciple. There's a lot to like about this guy called Andrew. First of all, he was content. He did not compare himself with the other disciples. 
And he did not criticize either. And God knows there was plenty to criticize about his brother Peter. And he didn't complain. And there's no record that he was jealous. He was just a content follower of Jesus. I want to be that. There's a lot to like about Andrew, but there's more to like. He regularly led persons to Jesus. That was his lifestyle. He regularly led people to Jesus. Like his brother Peter to begin with, John 1, 40 to 42. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon. Found him first. And he said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Don't you love that? (laughs) He brought his brother Simon to Jesus. I love that. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him, that is Peter, and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. So in the first place, this guy named Andrew, the fourth best disciple at best, was always bringing people to Jesus. Started with his brother Simon, who later be called Peter. But that wasn't all. He brought the little boy to Jesus who was in the crowd of 15,000 on this miracle occasion of feeding the whole group with a bag lunch. <laughs> six to eight, John, or eight to nine, John chapter six. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, Lord, the Lord, there's a lad here who has five loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? Now, you don't miss the fact that when Andrew said it, there's a lad here, he was right here. <laughs> he brought the lad right to Jesus. It wasn't that the lad's way in the back, Lord. I brought him to you with his little lunch. He's right here beside you, Lord. So he brought the little boy to Jesus. I love that. But it wasn't just his brother Peter that he brought to Jesus. It wasn't just the little boy with the sack lunch at the miracle of feeding of the 5,000 that he brought to Jesus. He brought Greeks to Jesus. Greeks. John 12, 20 to 22. Now, there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. By the way, do you realize the person who lives beside you is asking you the same? Sir, madam, I would see Jesus. And they're asking you to see Jesus because they know your car is parked out here every Lord's Day for an hour or two at Calvary Bible Church, and they figure you are on speaking terms with Jesus. And so they're wanting to say, Sir, we would see Jesus. Ma'am, we would see Jesus. They may not say it out loud. In fact, they probably don't. But in their heart of hearts, they think that they can see Jesus through you and me. Can they? The person you study with at the University of the Bahamas or in high school or in elementary, primary school or private school, those kids Know where you stand with Jesus, and they are saying under their breath, I would see Jesus from you. Do they? Well, these Greeks came first to Philip and began to ask him, saying, Sir, 
We wish to see Jesus. And Philip came and told Andrew, that was a wise move because Andrew always led people to Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. Jesus, there's some Greeks who want to see you. (laughs) I love that. And so I love that about uh, Andrew, that he was content. I love that he was regularly leading persons to Jesus. By the way, if this local church is going to grow, it's going to grow through conversion growth, not through transfer of membership. We need to be sharing our faith, leading people to Jesus. Third thing I like about Andrew was he had great faith. He had great faith. Why do I say that? Because he found a little boy, a small boy, in the big multitude. He found a small boy in the big multitude with a small lunch, and he brought him to a huge savior. He brought him to a huge savior. He had great faith. D.L. Moody, a shoe salesman who never had any theological education, that God Almighty used to turn Chicago and the world upside down for Christ. D.L. Moody was the one who said, the world has yet to see what God will do with a man fully consecrated to him. The world has yet to see what God will do with a man or a woman who's fully dedicated to God. Could that be you? It could. Sure it could. Could you dedicate everything you have to God this morning that he could use you to rock Nassau for Christ? He could. Would you dedicate yourself 100%, your money, your talent, your education, your job, your marriage, your children. Would you dedicate them all to God to see what God would do? Like he used a small boy with a small lunch and he's a huge God. May we have huge faith in a huge God. And so we move from the context and the conversations to the compounding of the food. Verses 10 to 13, Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place so that the men sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus therefore took the loaves and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated. Likewise also the fish, as much as they wanted, all you could eat. And when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. And so they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. The first thing I'd like you to see in this section on the compounding of the food was that Jesus had them sit down in groups. Other gospels report it was more organized than that even, that Jesus had them sit down in groups of 50 or 100 men. 50, so you could count it real easy. There's a group of 50 men, and there's another group of 50 men. Oh, there's a group of 100 men, and they added it up very easily to know there were 5,000 men alone who were fed. That tells us what we ought to know as believers that from 1 Corinthians 14, verse 40, that our God does everything decently and in order. Ours is not a God of chaos. 
Ours is not a God of disorganization. Ours is not a God who lets the tail wag the dog. He was organized. There were no disorganized stampedes for free food. And no one was overlooked. And so the first thing to see with the compounding of the food was that Jesus had them sit down in groups. The second thing to notice is Jesus Christ used his own hands and he prayed his own prayer to thank God for the food. When you do a little study of the New Testament, for every single time there was food in play for Jesus and his disciples, the Lord Jesus always offered the prayer of thanks to God for the food himself. He never asked the disciple to thank the Father for the food. That's interesting. The third thing to notice about the compounding of the food is that Jesus distributed the food to the people via his disciples. There's a principle here. What one does through another, he himself does. You follow that? What one does through another, he himself does. For instance, if there's a very skilled surgeon in the medical school of the West Indies, and he trains six surgeons to do surgeries that only he knows how to do, and he teaches those six young surgeons how to do that particular surgery, and then they go out in the world and do that surgery, the teaching surgeon really is doing the surgery through the six surgeons who learned everything they know from him. Or, your grandmother used to bake the most delicious fruit Christmas cake that you've ever, ever tasted. She gave you the recipe before she died. You asked for her for the recipe, and you have the recipe. And she went to be with Jesus in glory, and she's no longer baking fruit Christmas cakes at Christmas, but you are. <laughs> You're baking her recipe, and the cakes taste just like your mama's. What one does through another, he himself does. Or, I hate paying bills to begin with, but I'm even hate more to pay bills and I have to stand in a long line to pay them. And I try to do all my bill payments online, but sometimes, you know, things go awry and you got to go to Marathon Mall and stand in a line hoping someone will feed you lunch to get the payment made, right? <laughs> but if I send someone else to pay my bill with my bill and the money to pay for my bill and they stand in the line and they pay my bill, my bill got paid as if I paid it, but I had my delegate pay it. And so what one does through another, he himself or she herself does. The fourth thing to notice about the compounding of the food is that there was abundance. You realize that your God doesn't just eke by when you are asking him to provide for you. He just doesn't give you just barely enough. When you trust him and it's in accordance with his will, he lavishes more than you ever thought to ask him for. He's the God of abundance. He is not the God of just eking it out, just getting by. He's not stingy. He's not reluctant. And so it was with the feeding of the 15,000 persons with a sack lunch. There was abundance. There was leftovers. There was food left over after Jesus compounded it and multiplied it and everybody ate what they wanted to eat. It was like an all-you-could-eat buffet, and there was still food left. 
that is the God of abundance. But will you notice that even in the abundance of the food, with the leftovers of the food, Jesus did not give permission for any to go to waste. He told them to collect up the fragments of the leftovers, and he wanted an inventory to be taken of the food that was left over. He cared about how many basketfuls were collected, 12. That mattered to Jesus. He took an inventory of what was left over. By the way, if you're needing a verse for toting, (laughs) here it is. Right here. It's in the Bible. Toting. I looked for furl in the verses, but I I didn't see it. From the context to the conversations (laughs) to the compounding of the food, we come to the conclusion of the account of this amazing miracle. And it's in verse 14. When therefore the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is of a truth of the prophet who is to come into the world. This is the meat and potatoes of this miracle. This is the main thrust, the main point. The takeaway from this miracle is right here. And he is called the prophet in verse 14. When they therefore the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is of the truth, the prophet who is to come into the world. What prophet? The buzz in the crowd. This is the prophet. What prophet? Well, possibly the most forgotten prophet of all in the (laughs) Old Testament. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, you shall listen to him. They knew, if they knew the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, they knew about the prophet. They were looking for the prophet. And they said, that's the prophet. (laughs) That's the prophet. Now, in the decades and centuries that were leading up to the miracle of Jesus feeding 5,000 men plus women and children, the scuttlebutt in Israel, the belief in Israel, what the rabbis taught Jews before Jesus was that this prophet was Moses or Joshua. Moses or Joshua. This miracle was pulling the blinds back, opening the drapes to show that a new and a greater prophet had burst on the scene. Better than Moses. Better than Joshua. The Lord Jesus Christ. The ultimate prophet. In 1 John, not 1 John, John chapter 1, verses 25 to 27 And they, that's the crowd on the River Jordan bank, asked him, that is John the Baptist, and said to him, why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? They knew John the Baptist wasn't any of those three. He wasn't the Christ, he wasn't Elijah, and he wasn't the prophet. And they asked him, why are you baptizing people if you aren't any of these? John the Baptist answered to them saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one who you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Then in Acts chapter three, 
The sermon that was preached there also references Deuteronomy 18.15 when it says, Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the word of his holy prophets from ancient time. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you, watch it, a prophet, like from your brethren. To him, you shall give heed to everything he says to you, and it will be that every soul that does not heed the prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. This concept of the Old Testament prophet is woven into the Old Testament, but it's also woven into the New Testament. And Jesus is the culmination, the ultimate prophet. Acts 7, verse 37. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. So Moses didn't labor under any misunderstanding. He knew that he wasn't the prophet, but a prophet would come after him that was somewhat like him. That was Jesus. And so... What we need to see when we do an aerial view of the minds of the 15,000 persons who were fed by a lunch pail lunch of a little boy, we need to understand that the prophet, little p prophet Moses, he regulated the feeding of God's manna. The camp that Moses oversaw was perhaps four million Jews who came out of slavery in Egypt. Four million mouths to feed. And what Moses did was he regulated the feeding of those four million persons from God's manna. That was something. But the prophet, Jesus, with a capital P, prophet, he created the food which was fed by the, or eaten by the 5,000 men, 5,000 women, and 5,000 kids. That's a lot different. Moses just regulated the food for the four million. Jesus created the food. (laughs) That's way different. That's way different. And so the bottom line on that day when Jesus fed the crowd, many of the persons who were blessed by the miracle of Jesus feeding 5,000 men plus women and children, many of them saw him as their awaited prophet. That's what they said at the end of the account. 14, when therefore the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is of a truth, the prophet who is to come into the world. So many in that fed crowd understood, this is the prophet. This is the prophet. But there were plenty of people in the crowd who did not understand that the prophet equals the Messiah. They didn't understand, some of them didn't understand that when Jesus was identified as the prophet, he was also to be identified as the Messiah because they go together. John 1.25 makes this really clear that some of them missed the point. They asked him and said to him, to John the Baptist, why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? That's three different things. They knew John the Baptist wasn't Christ, Messiah. He wasn't Elijah, and he wasn't the prophet. But there are three distinctions that tell you that for many people in the Jewish nation, they didn't understand that Christ and prophet overlapped. Do you know this morning all of Jesus? 
Do you understand what the scriptures say about Jesus? Do you understand that he's the only savior God's going to provide for sinners? Do you understand that he's Lord? He is savior and Lord, master, boss, owner. Do you understand that at the right hand of the Father, if you're a Christian this morning, Jesus is interceding in prayer for you? Do you know that Jesus Christ is the king in waiting? He's going to be king over planet Earth in his coming kingdom, and he's the king in waiting. Do you know that? Do you know that this Jesus is going to be the ultimate evaluator of me and each of you who are born again at the judgment seat of Christ? One by one, he's going to evaluate whether our ministries done for him were rewardable or unrewardable. Do you realize that? And do you realize that this Jesus is also the ultimate sentencing judge of all persons who will stand before him one by one who rejected him as Savior while alive on earth? Do you realize that? Just like the Jews failed to see that the prophet and the Messiah are the same, we can fail to see that Jesus is a full-orbed presentation of what the New Testament tells us that he is. Okay, so we've gone through the miracle. It's an amazing miracle. And we've seen some important things. But let's land the plane. Let's make a point or two here. What should you take in your purse away from this sermon? What should you take in your wallet away from this sermon? Well, I think three things. You ready? Number one, the Lord delights in using the insignificant. The Lord delights in using the insignificant. In fact, he picks the insignificant over the significant, it says in 1 Corinthians 1. God delights in using the insignificant. Example, the little boy. <laughs> He used a little boy. And then, not just that, he used a little boy's lunch of five barley loaves. Do you know what barley was in the time of Jesus? It was cheap food. It was the food that poor persons had. That's all they had, barley. It was inexpensive. It was cheap food. Jesus not only used an insignificant little boy, he uses an insignificant little boy's lunch that was made out of the most cheap groceries available in the day. <laughs> then Jesus used two insignificant fish. Now, you need to know that the fish that Jesus used were not mahi-mahi dolphin. <laughs> they were not Nassau grouper. They were scrawny, little, tiny, herring-like fish, maybe like a sardine, two sardines. <laughs> Jesus delights in using the insignificant the little smidge of protein that the little boy's mummy put into his lunch so we have a smidge of protein, like a teaspoonful of tuna tomorrow morning. Jesus, God delights in, in using the insignificant. You doubt that? There's shepherd Moses' staff. There's Gideon's 300 troops who had to be reduced to 300 so God could use them to defeat 145,000 Midianites. God delights in using the insignificant shepherd boy David's slingshot and five stones. God delights in using the insignificant Jesus Christ Palm Sunday donkey. Not a war horse, a donkey. You see, the question you should be asking is not, am I significant enough to serve God? The question should be, am I insignificant enough to serve God? 
You know, people in the Bible who understood their insignificance, God used mightily. The Virgin Mary, Jesus' mother. Moses had a speech impediment. Isaiah felt totally unqualified to be a prophet to Judah. John the Baptist, (laughs) not even worthy to undo the strap on Jesus' sandal. You don't have to ask the question, am I significant enough for God to use me? You better ask the question, am I insignificant enough in my own understanding for God to use me? God delights in using the insignificant. Do you know why? Then he gets all the glory. When God uses me and you as insignificant persons to do mighty things, then he gets all the glory. We get none of the glory. Second thing I'd like you to see, by way of conclusion, the Lord delights in using the insignificant insignificant when they have one hand in the Lord Jesus' hand and the other hand in the hand of a needy person. God delights in using an insignificant person who puts their hand in Jesus' hand and their other hand in the hand of needy persons. Put that another way, the Lord delights in using an insignificant person who is in contact with Jesus and is in contact with other persons. You know, I have the privilege of being paid to study God's word and to pray. But if I just stick in my office and study God's word and pray and don't have any contact with all of you, my church family, I'm missing my job. And if you... Have your hand in Jesus' hand through your devotions and your quiet time readings in the morning. Wonderful. But if you don't have the other hand in the hand of somebody at work who needs Christ, someone at work who needs lunch, somebody at work who needs guidance, then you're missing the point too. God blesses the insignificant person whose one hand is holding Jesus' hand and the other hand is holding a needy person's hand. Don't you love that? But there's more. The Lord delights in using the insignificant when they have one hand in the hand of Christ and the other hand in the hand of another person so that the Lord is seen as being more than sufficient. God wants to be seen as being more than sufficient. And he'll use an insignificant you and me who put one hand in Jesus' hand and the other hand in a needy person's hand, and he will show his wonderful more than sufficiency in that kind of an arrangement. By the way, let me just go back to the second conclusion. When I said that I would fail in my job if I hold up in my office and studied Bible and theology and prayed for you without getting amongst you, that is true, that I need to be amongst you. And so will you please pray for me? Will you pray for me that I will counsel you with God's word as you present your needs to me, that I will visit you in the hospital or in your home if you invite me. Pray for me that I will be in the foyer after each service that I possibly can be at, shaking hands, and I know there's no time or opportunity to go into big situations of explanation, but you can just shake my hand and say, Pastor, will you phone me this week? I need to be in the foyer. I need to be accessible You should be able to see me if all things are equal without a real lead time on an appointment. 
You should be able to walk into the church and say, is the pastor available? And if I'm available, I should sit down and talk with you, pray with you, pray for me. I need to listen well to you all. I need to be more interested in what you're saying to me than what I could say to you. Pray for me. I need to ask you the right questions. Move past the superficial, the sports, the weather. Move into what's significant. Ask you significant questions. Pray for me. I need to intercede for you in prayer by name. And as you share with me what you need prayer for, I commit to praying for it. I need to love the flock. I need to love you. Pray for me. And some of you are visiting today, and I'm glad you are. You have your own pastors. Everything I've said about me, what I need prayer for, your pastor needs prayer for too. All right. We're almost finished. The third conclusion to recap, the Lord delights in using the insignificant when they have one hand in his and the other hand in the hand of another person because the Lord is more than sufficient. And so last thing I'm going to say, do you remember that the Gospels record two feeding miracles Jesus did? There's this one, which is 5,000 men plus women and children, and 12 baskets were collected of leftovers, and a separate feeding miracle happened with 4,000 men plus women and children, and seven baskets of leftovers were collected. Why would there be two feeding Miracles. Why did Jesus bother to feed two large groups of persons in a miraculous way? I'll tell you why. Because the feeding of the 5,000 that we've taken up together this morning were Jews. But the feeding of the 4,000, they were Gentiles. So Jesus was making the point that whether you were a Jew or a Gentile, he was more than sufficient. I don't know what you face this week. I don't know whether you have a fear you're facing. Jesus is more than enough. I don't know what you may be fearing or what you may be being forsaken by others. Jesus is enough. I don't know this week what you will forget that you purpose to remember, but Jesus is enough. I don't know whatever your famine may be this week. It may be food, it may be money, it may be something else. I don't know what your famine is this week, but Jesus, I'm here to tell you, is more than enough. And after these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias, and a great multitude was following him because they were seeing the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. And Jesus went up to the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Jesus, therefore, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a great multitude was coming to him, said to Philip, where are we to buy bread that these may eat? And this he was saying to him to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are these for so many people? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus therefore took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated. Likewise also the fish, 
as much as they wanted. And when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. And so they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. When therefore the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is of a truth, the prophet who is to come into the world. Lord, thank you for your power that is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Help us to be insignificant persons who keep our hand in yours and put our other hand in the hands of needy persons. Help us, Lord, to understand that when we do this in obedience, that your great more than sufficiency will be showcased. Oh, God, showcase your more than enoughness through us this week. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.